Welcome to the Love, Sex and Intimacy podcast for women who want to experience intimate relationships and sex that are pleasurable and passionate, happy, thriving and deeply fulfilling. With my very special guest experts guiding lights and pioneers in their specialist areas, we'll be breaking down the myths, exploring the difficult stuff, the good stuff and seeing what's possible for love, sex and intimacy at this time of rapid change. In these candid and intimate conversations, I'll be bringing you the best of sex and relationship education, full of practical ways to support and inspire change in your intimate life. I'm your host, Sarah Rosebright. Whether you're curious about what's possible or you're already committed to exploring, I'm so happy you are here. Hello and welcome to this episode with Tamu Thomas on self-care, pleasure and revolutionizing work. Tamu is on a huge mission to help women to work to live rather than live to work. And you might be wondering what the topic of work has to do with love, sex and intimacy. Well, it is a lot to do with love, sex and intimacy because our work can have a huge impact on how we experience sex, pleasure, intimacy, as Tamu shares. I see this all the time and a lot of the women I work with who are often overworking, stressed and exhausted. And Tamu helps women to have a different relationship with work. And part of that is having a better quality of life. So she supports women with areas like self-care, pleasure, rest, all sorts of things that we dive into. So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Welcome to today's episode, and I'm really delighted to be joined today by Tamu Thomas. Welcome. Hello, hello. Thank you so much for having me. I am <laughs> delighted to be here. Oh, pleasure. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. And I would love to start with inviting you to share what it is you do in the world. A little about yeah. you. <laughs> um, I am an educator, a coach, a space holder, a cheerleader for values-led businesswomen, women who want to go from the um, chaos, uncertainty and um, boom and bust cycles of people pleasing in their business to becoming more grounded, more fulfilled, more powerful, purposeful um, in their business so they can create a thriving business that supports the way they want to live. Um, I really am very passionate about supporting women to end the kind of paradigm where we live to work and remember that we work to support how we live. I'm on a campaign to evangelize everybody into remembering that we work to live, therefore work can be a part of our self-care, especially when we're self-employed freelancing entrepreneurs. And working in a manner that supports our self-care doesn't mean that we're not going to make the money we want to make and have the impacts we want to have in the world. In fact, we can do that from a richer, more resourced, authentic place when we um, create work that supports how we want to live and us being the best of ourselves. Mm, amazing. Thank you. Wow. So I'd love to talk more about the business aspect because I know many women listening are entrepreneurs. Mm. Um, but I also can imagine this is so um, helpful and inspiring for people to hear who are maybe in organizations and working Absolutely. in businesses as well. Yeah. And I know you do a lot around self-care, which I'd love to, to dive in. So um, first of all, though, I'd love to hear how did you get to do this work? Tell us some of your journey and your story. 
Um, well, I was a burnt out social worker who was completely frazzled. Um, I grew up in the 80s and 90s, seeing magazine headlines all over the place about life begins at 40, life is great at 40, women are in their prime in their 40s, you have the best sex in your 40s. <laughs> so I didn't realise I had an unconscious belief that all of a sudden, I would turn 40, life would reveal itself to me and I would be living the life I want to live. And what actually happened was around 38, which seems to be a key age for many people, I could see 40 on the horizon and realise that I was not going to have the 40 I wanted because I hadn't prepared for it. And I hadn't been I hadn't prepared for it because other than thinking uh, life begins at 40, I hadn't understood that I have to know what I want and what I need in order for this life to begin at 40. So um, age 38, I started to experience what I would be, what I would call heightened periods of anxiety. I started to feel really low and there were many more days that I didn't really appreciate myself um, than there were days that I did appreciate and value myself. Um, I was in a relationship that I had to disassociate to tolerate being in, not because he was a bad guy, not because of anything he did, just simply he wasn't for me. We were not aligned and uh, we didn't share the same values. And um, in terms of emotional intimacy and emotional, uh, I wouldn't say intelligence, but literacy, I was more evolved than he was. Um, and thought that it was my role to uh, dumb myself down to be able to be in a relationship. I grew around with a lot of um, phrases such as, look at what I have to put up with, women saying things like that uh, in their relationships. And um, I just felt really discontent. I didn't even know that was the word. I felt really discontent. And I just, the word I used all the time was, I feel like a failure but failing at what I couldn't quite articulate because on paper, my life was cool. You know, I had a career, a uh, child, etc. cetera. Um, and as I was getting closer to 40, I just looked around me and listened to like the patterns within the conversations I was having with the women around me. And I could just see a disco ball of mirrors reflecting back to me some shape or form of my experience and how that had been normalized. And I just thought this cannot be it. Then I um, stumbled across the world of positive psychology and did some short courses and um, came across this happiness graph, which showed a really sharp U-bend for um, in terms of happiness as you approach your middle age. I don't know if it was specifically towards women, but there were lots of stats about women having a particularly hard time because of how we're socialized as we enter into our middle ages. And so like from 40, the U-bend starts to dip and it doesn't start to rise again till you're like 60. And I just thought, I'm not spending 20 years in the bottom <laughs> of this U-bend. And then that 20 years sparked something for me. I realized when I looked back at my 20s, I could see how 40 was looking the way it was looking because of the way um, I conducted myself in my 20s. And I just thought, you know what, in my next, in uh, like I'm making 60 now, like I'm 40. If I think that we make our years 20, uh, our years, 20 years in advance, I want to put myself in the position where I am having a bombastic 60. I'm enjoying myself. I'm living on my terms, etc. 
and um, I was totally burnt out by social work. I would in fact say that I was traumatized by my career in social work and I lived in burnout for the majority of the 16 years I was in social work um, and I really loved the core of social work. I really appreciated that social work was about helping people learn how to meet their unmet needs so they could um, thrive. And I thought, I've got all of these valuable skills. I want to be able to utilize these skills in a business where I'm still able to enjoy what I do and have variety. Like I need to have um, variety. If anybody out there is interested in human design, <laughs> I am a manifesting generator and I really need to feel connected to what I'm doing and have like a, a real uh, kind of like sensual connection to what I'm doing, like a very sacral connection to what I'm doing. Um, and I always wanted to have my own business. So I tried various business endeavors and I, I always knew that it was my destiny, not just to be self-employed, but to have my own company. Um, so in May, 2018, I launched Live360 and I was prepared to launch the idea I had at its time and uh, work with the universe and my ancestors to allow it to shape and evolve as I learned more and evolved more and learned more about um, what my people need. So that's, that is how I got like anxiety. Uh, my doctor saying to me the, um, what I'm describing, no, it wasn't my doctor, my doctor referred me to um, uh, psychotherapeutic services. And when I had the initial consultation, they said to me that what I am describing as low mood um, they would describe as um, severe moderate depression and what I was describing as heightened anxiety were panic attacks so I was having panic attacks didn't recognize them because I've seen people have panic attacks I was a social worker I worked with lots of people who were impacted by anxiety and panic attacks and because they were coming from such disadvantage and I wasn't what I was experiencing didn't look like what they were experiencing so I thought well it can't be I'm just not managing I'm just not organized I'm just not consistent I'm just not disciplined and all of those sorts of things meanwhile my mental and emotional health were really suffering um, and my body was craving for my attention mm. so I thought um, I, I had the um, experience of seeing a friend of mine have a psychotic breakdown and the way she was behaving, I looked at her and I thought, damn, I feel like that on the inside quite often. And there were many times I would think to myself, if one more thing happens, I'm gonna lose it. And I just thought, I've got a child. Being a role model is very, very important to me. I didn't want to role model for her what I referred to and still referred to rinsing myself out um, and I wanted to be different. I wanted my daughter to experience me as powerful and energized and vibrant and fun. And I wasn't doing any of those things. So that whole kind of myriad of things and being in relationships I had no business being in, uh, both romantic relationships and friendships. I just thought, if I don't sort this out now, it's never going to happen. And I saw that this was being reflected in lots of women around me and thought to myself, I could do something that's really satisfying for me that could really help shape other people and have a ripple effect for their families, their communities, et cetera. Um, and I'd really love to be able to do that. 
and I was also looking at the wellness industry and I was just like I didn't use I didn't know this term at the time in 2018 but now I'm just like this is a whole load of spiritual bypassing and spiritual capitalism I want to do something that's actually evidence-based and rooted in something and it is very spiritual and is very nourishing but is actually rooted in something that is not um your highest self and transcending to the 5d all the time mm, thank you wow and do you know for people you know so many people are having you know people have always had a lot of mental health problems but right now there's even more of a squeeze it feels like in the world so how did you transition from that place of panic attacks and depression and burnout into um this place where you, you look like and feel like you're thriving. Um, what were some of the key things to you? I'd love to hear some of your wisdom from that time. I got help. You know, we are the most pro-social creatures on this planet. We thrive in relationship to other people and being in relationship with other people. We're not designed to do this on our own. And there's no way in this world I would have been able to see parts of myself I had packed away and wasn't looking at. And there's no way I would have been able to give myself the compassion I needed to give myself in order to be able to thrive and flourish because we, most of us, are brought up in a very archaic system that is Dickensian, to be quite honest, and we're brought up on shame and blame. So I wouldn't have been able to do it because my stuff was, rather than there's something going on here, it was, you're not good enough, you're not disciplined enough, etc. So I got help. Um, so I didn't know what coaching was. I just saw somebody who is now my friend, Nicola Ray Wickham, talking on social media and she was offering like one-off sessions and we were both working full-time at the time so like we met at like seven o'clock in the morning for this um, coaching session or six and um, she said words to me I hadn't heard before um, and she doesn't even really use this language anymore because she's grown and evolved but as I was talking she was talking about um, limiting beliefs and there were other phrases she used and I was like oh so it's not that I'm bad. It's not that I'm bad. It's not that I'm malfunctioning. It's something else. It is. Uh, and again, I wouldn't have known this at these words at the time, but it's actually more systemic. Mm. It's actually that we are nonlinear and we're trying to be forced and cajoled into fitting into very linear systems and structures. And that was the first inkling I'd had that I was being, that I was bullying myself basically, because that's what I had seen all around me. So I started off with coaching and indulging in podcasts um, because at that time, yes, it was that one-off coaching session. I didn't know what coaching was. Um, I knew about therapy, but I had just decided I couldn't afford that stuff. It was for middle-class white women who lived in Kensington or wherever it is, or Putney or something, and I wasn't gonna be able to access that. So my first entry point was listening to podcasts and reading self-help books and as a social worker I kept thinking well this is the theory how do I make it practical because that's what social workers do we take you know what the psychologists and psychiatrists and drug and alcohol workers and whatever else say and we create practical plans so that people can actually make changes to their lives so I just kept looking at wh where's the practice how can I apply this practically to my life um, so I started with that and I could feel that 
I was feeling different from the inside out. I wasn't trying to put things on top of me. I could actually feel that I was changing and I could see that my relationships with people were changing by their responses and reactions to me. Um, especially me being a bit of a people pleaser, well, being a people pleaser, not speaking my mind, making sure everything's okay and pretending things weren't affecting me when they were. So I could see those shifts and I had become not just um, more, uh, yeah, I'd become more intentional because I had more clarity about who I was or who, yeah, who I was, who I am. And I started to realize that these needs I was pushing away because they made me needy were exactly the things that were helping me become the person I wanted to be when I met them. Um, so then I had, you know, as that happened, I expanded, my business expanded, and I was able to not just create the income, but create the belief that I was the type of person that had coaching, that had therapy, so then I started um, having therapy. Um, I've been with my therapist for nearly two and a half years now and I don't see the end in sight. Um, and I slowed down. I slowed down so that I could start to notice things, start to notice how I feel, started to pay attention to the sensations in my body and how I wanted to react to things. I started paying attention to that in the moment. So I started to get the signs of where I was saying yes when I wanted to say no, when I was saying no, when I wanted to say yes. Um, and that was really assisted also by education. So in 2020, I um, studied with a somatic school and became an accredited, an accredited somatic coach. And that really led me into all sorts of education, training and work within um, somatics and embodiment so that I could really have an understanding of the role my body plays in my life because I was very much disconnected from my body. Apart from what it looked like in clothes, I, I couldn't tell you what my body felt like because I coped with life by dissociating from how I felt. Um, so I did a lot of work that enabled me to start to land inside my body and begin to feel safe inside my body and not scared of all the sensations and all the feelings I was feeling because I wasn't used to feeling at first, I was terrified of everything. Um, and then I realized that these feelings are messenger messengers and a lot of them felt a lot bigger and sharper than they actually were because they had been suppressed for so long. They were just constantly fighting, trying to make themselves known and trying to be processed through my body. And I thought, well, if, if I'm like this, I cannot be the only one. Um, and I started to see the layers upon layers um, of the way we oppress and suppress ourselves. Like I say, our nervous system is a reflection of the system in which we live. And our system is very much about power over dominance, squashing down anything that gets in the way of productivity and being neat and tidy and convenient. And we do that to ourselves and shame ourselves for the really uh, ordinary and extraordinary things that make us human beings as opposed to human doings. Sorry, I don't even know if I answered. I just went where, where the conversation <laughs> took me, never mind you. <laughs> no, it's, it's so lovely to hear because it's, it's, you know, so many people listening are going through, you know, burnout and all sorts of different things. And just hearing that healing is possible and someone gets some inspiration and wisdom yeah. from, from, from your journey. 
um, is wonderful. And, and so you mentioned about sort of spiritual capitalism and, and all of this. And, you know, this word self-care is bandied around and, um, and, and can become something that can become a, like punishing in its own right. I'm not loving myself enough. I'm not yes. caring myself enough or I should have be doing this, that and the other. And um, so what does grounded self-care look like to you? Grounded self-care to me looks like doing what you say you're going to do when you're going to do it. And I don't mean that like, well, if you don't do it, then you're a failure. But one of the reasons why we become so detached from ourselves is because we tell ourselves untruths all the time. So we rupture our relationship with ourselves and we start to tell ourselves we're not trustworthy. And that can look like... Um, that can look like classic for me is if I need to do something for someone, you bet your bottom dollar, I will do everything I can to make sure I do that something, something for someone when I say I'm going to do it. When I need to do something for myself, I'm much more likely to um, negotiate down, change the date, say I'll do it later, prioritize doing something for somebody else, abandoning myself in order to look good externally whilst I'm letting myself down internally. So it's from little things like that. Um, it's from, um, I'm not in a relationship at the moment, but in relationship, not having sex when you don't wanna have sex, like not caretaking with sex because that's not something I want to do. Self-care is also being uh, courageous and trusting in myself and knowing that I can't control how other people react to things, but if I communicate honestly and kindly, that's all I can do. So that may look like, uh, friends, that was banter for a long time, but I've never really liked it. I've just tolerated it because I thought I should, but actually that really hurts my feelings. I'd prefer if we not, and leave that on the table there. If there's a discussion to be had, there's a discussion to be had, but not withholding because I'm so concerned that if I say I don't want you to laugh at me anymore you're going to think I'm a horrible person and I'm not up for a laugh and therefore you're not going to like me anymore. Self-care is knowing what your yes is and knowing what your no is and being able to articulate that. Self-care for me is as a business person is not messing around with my pricing and making sure I'm pricing in a way that honors the value I'm offering, the time and energy it takes to create what I'm creating and making sure I'm not gonna end up resentful because I've priced something so low to please you and then you're not engaging in it in the way I want you to engage in it because I'm such a good person, I've made it so accessible and then harboring um, resentment. Self-care looks like remembering the overall goal I'm working towards and giving myself um, small wins, giving myself immediate gratification, which uh, may be something as quote unquote simple as acknowledging and celebrating myself for doing something that I didn't wanna do in the moment, but in the long term is going to pay off dividends. For example, working out, going to the, the gym. For me, strength training is very, very important for my overall well-being. I'm a middle-aged woman. My um, bone density is doing what nature is telling it to do. And there are ways I can support that. Lifting weights is one of the ways I do that. And uh, it's also really great for 
my uh, emotional well-being. So it's, I'm not going to watch Grey's Anatomy. I'm actually going to take myself off to the gym. And even though it feels painful in the long term, I'm going to, I'm going to benefit. And like lots of people will say to me, oh, well, you went to the gym when you didn't want to. Don't you feel better for it? No, I don't. The aim wasn't to feel better for it. Like if we have to feel, do uh, everything to feel better, like if we have to promise ourselves you're going to feel better after you've done something, we're setting ourselves up for failure because we're not going to feel better all the time. But I feel powerful. I feel like I'm trustworthy and I respect myself. So that's why I will take myself and look like I'm being punished and get into it. But I don't necessarily feel like, oh, my goodness, like, you know, I'm a Spice Girl um, afterwards. So it's those sorts of things. And it's not being a martyr. It's knowing that I can say no to my child. And that doesn't mean I'm rejecting her. It's knowing that I'm allowed to have boundaries. I'm allowed to be a human being. And that doesn't mean I'm taking away from anybody else's humanity. It's knowing that I have needs and the people I'm around have needs. And at times our needs are in opposition of each other. And it doesn't mean we have to argue, fight, disagree or whatever. It means that we need to go off and meet our needs rather than project our unmet needs onto other people. And yes, of course, it's things like having an Epsom salt bath. I need to have two Epsom salt baths twice a week because I need it. My body benefits from it. I like that time. Um, my self-care includes having a morning routine, but it also includes ha having rituals and practices I do throughout the day because I don't believe that my needs should be relegated to the beginning and the end of the day. My needs are my needs all throughout the day. So there's, you know, I've got a manifestation practice. I love to set intentions at the new moon. I love to release things at the um, full moon. I love my crystals. I love my, um, uh, what's it call it, cards. I love to pull all sorts of different kinds of like ancestral cards, angel cards, energy cards. Um, but fundamentally, self-care for me is showing up as the person who meets their needs as an act of devotion, of respect, of reverence, of care. Uh, Self-care for me is showing myself I've got my back, not just with my words, but with my actions and understanding that my needs are a bid for connection. So rather than shoving them away, making myself high maintenance or whatever the case may be, I see my needs as a bid for connection and I offer myself that. That is what self-care means to me. And I just want to add on to that. When you are caring for yourself the way you need to be cared for, you have got much more capacity. It widens your window of tolerance. It doesn't mean that life gets easier. It means that you are more equipped to cope with the ebbs and flows of life because lots of us can't cope with joy either. When you have built that capacity, human beings, I said earlier, we're the mo most pro-social creatures on this planet, the next um, evolution from self-care where we're really caring for ourselves, it's not a navel-gazing individual thing. Self-care naturally, when we're really caring for ourselves, leads to social care. It means that I've got the capacity to care about my neighbor, to care about other people. And social care also includes this planet. Earth is our ultimate mother. We are children of this planet. So it means we're much more mindful about how we engage with the planet. And that social care, when we are caring for ourselves and each other, recognizing that we have a right to care and be cared for, the natural evolution of that is social justice. 
because when you recognize that the tree outside your window, the person that has a disability, the black person, the woman, the non-binary person, when you realize that all of these, all of us living beings on this planet have a right to care, then you're much more likely to understand what justice and equity are and be much more willing, committed and able to advocate, not just for yourself, but also for other people. So self-care for me is really important because it, suppo it supports emotional and psychological safety. And all of that comes together with the self-care, the social care and the social justice to create system care. Mm. So, yeah. you know, I just wanna, cause lots of people, <clears throat> because we've got the self in front of the care, there are times when I challenge people because it has become really insular and it has become much more about consumption and commodification as opposed to expanding your capacity. And it doesn't mean that you have to do everything for everyone. I'm not talking about people pleasing here, but it's about expanding your capacity, expanding your range for life. So um, in polyvagal theory, Deb Dana talks about um, uh, being able to fall in love with life and take the risk of living. That's what I'm talking about. That's what self-care facilitates for us. If you're engaging in self-care practices, you're going to retreats, you're doing the meditation, you've got the crystals, you do the salt baths, and still you feel like there's not enough you're operating from a place of scarcity. You get into cycles of toxic comparison because not all comparison is um, unhealthy. And uh, you're getting into a point where you're becoming really envious of other people, etc. You're not actually self-caring. You're mm -hmm. actually suppressing yourself. You're using self-care as a coping mechanism uh, to continue to, de to detach from your real lived experience. And that's what I refer to as spiritual bypassing and spiritual capitalism. So that's when people say things like, um, um, I was feeling this way and then I meditated and I became really disciplined with my practice and I don't feel that way anymore. Well, where did that go? How did you process it? How did you honor it? What have you learned from it? Um, it's it, uh, another way of bypassing is, well, I just need to be more disciplined. If you constantly need to tell yourself you need to be more disciplined, you actually need to be um, looking deeper than that because that's actually, we will call it resistance, but that's actually a protective pattern. Something within you feels unsafe with the action you're trying to take and you are moving without having consent from your body. Therefore, your body is saying, mm -mm, we're not playing this game. And um, as I said last week in an event I uh, hosted, you cannot fight against your biology your biology will always win and to be quite frank if you do not listen to your biology your biology will whoop your ass I know that that was depression for me that was anxiety for me for many people it's all kinds of um, inflammation it's frustration um, etc so um, yeah it's about working with your body listening to what your needs are telling you and being able to um, honor that and tend to that rather than suppress it because you're never going to learn from it and you're just making everything um, a shadow that is leaking out all over everything whilst you keep turning your back on it 
and then you're just going to enter into repetitive cycles where you're experiencing the same thing in different ways all over the place and not realizing the common denominator is you. And I say that with a caveat because I don't want to gaslight people. We do live in a system that is very oppressive, that is very unhelpful and benefits from us feeling disenfranchised, from us being strangers to ourselves. So I'm not talking about systemic things. I'm talking about the things that are within your control. So, uh, you know, lots of people will talk about um, the news. It's so depressing. Well, it's within your control as to whether or not you watch the news, how much news you watch, which news sources you go to. I'm not saying pretend things aren't going on and ignorance is bliss, but you don't need to watch every single day uh, talk about the economic crisis if it's making you spiral and feel helpless and feel like you're about to lose your home tomorrow. And I'm saying feel because uh, the client group I work with, whilst they do need to keep their eye on the um, economic crisis, and they definitely are feeling that their shopping basket, shopping basket is getting uh, more expensive week on week, they are not in a position where one more change means they're going to be below the um, poverty line. So they don't need to passively absorb everything like they're being severely impacted to a point where they're not able to be who they need to be to do what they need to do um, because they're passively absorbing things uh, without any boundaries. A lot there. <laughs> but wow. I'm so passionate about this stuff. I yeah. can, I, you know, I'm mindful that I can be a yeah. bit like a tsunami, but you know, this, this is real. Yeah. We need to have totally. real conversations and we need to speak to the heart of issues instead yeah. of dancing around on the surface because we're not going to be able to make the changes within ourselves that are going to enable us to make the changes we want to make elsewhere. Yeah, and you articulate it so clearly and beautifully and passionately as well. And I, you know, there's a few things I'd love to pick up on. I really, I could feel when you talked about self-care as an act of devotion, you know, my heart just went, whoa, you know, I love that word devotion, but then feeling the difference of the discipline of the beating yourself up. Um, and, you know, I really loved how you talked about how when we are in that place of self-care, we have more capacity for kindness for the people around us, for our mm -hmm. communities and how that spreads into the world and through our actions, our words and our deeds versus what um, uh, Kimberly Ann Johnson is, a, uh, I don't know if you know her work, she does a lot of somatic uh, trauma healing work for women in America and she talks about the hashtag me first era, which is that sort of spiritual, you know, um, bypassing and that just yeah. so much focus on the self. Yeah. And so I love that. And um, and also I love, I mean, there's lots I loved, but I also really love what you talked about in terms of, say, for example, you're going weight training, or going to the gym, because I see a lot in the sort of spiritual communities of, oh, that doesn't feel good. That's not an alignment. But actually, sometimes life is uncomfortable when we're alignment, growing. It, alignment is uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> because alignment means, so I talk about, you know, uh, being in your healthy adult self. Alignment means operating from that healthy adult self as opposed to that wounded inner child. And the wounded inner child, oh no, I don't want to, that's not fair, I don't feel like it. And do you know what, sometimes it's not even like that. I use this analogy all the time. We, we've seen it, 
And most of us who have cared for children, we don't even have to be parents. But if you've cared for a toddler, you've probably experienced it. You're taking your toddler or the toddler in your care to the park. You don't even wanna to go to the park, but that child needs to go to the park because they're a child, they need to go to the park. They don't really understand what's going on. Therefore, they're rebelling. They're flailing around. You're trying to get them in the pushchair. They're not putting themselves in the pushchair. They're making themselves stiff like a board. So sometimes you see parents and it looks like <laughs> the parent is ramming that child into the pushchair so they can do the safety class. And then you go on the journey. The child is still fussing. Then the child takes a moment and looks and thinks, oh my goodness, we're going to that place with other children and swings and slides and oh, I like that place. Sometimes we need to ram our baby in the buggy and take ourselves to the park. And that can be going to the gym. That can be going out with our mates to go out and play with our mates and have a good time. That is especially for those of us that love to do the deep work, the deep healing work, the shadow work, that um, isolation in those dark states, really digging into the root of what caused this and the memory of this and the insight and this, that and the other, that can be a really alluring place. And you can believe you're doing lots and lots of work and you can get stuck there, rehashing, digging up old wounds, etc., and not actually progressing. So in those times, we need to put ourselves in our push chairs and take ourselves to the park because life is all about harmony. There is nothing in nature that is doing one thing all the time, like it's impossible. And we are nature as well. So it's about those things. It's, it's about alignment means, my goodness, uh, this morning, I really fancied going back to bed when I took my daughter to school and just lying down for a little bit longer I'm perimenopausal. It's a few days before my period's due to start. So my sleep gets really, really broken. But I've also got a piece of work I need to do. And I will feel like grot bags if I don't do that piece of work. Which grot bags will feel the worst? Being a bit tired or not doing that piece of work that I promised to myself I was going to do? Not doing that piece of work is going to make me feel worse than me being tired. For me being tired, I can have my adaptogen mushroom blend drink. I can jump up and down and listen to Soulful House. I can open the windows. There are all sorts of things I can get me through that. But getting me through knowing that, frankly, I've mugged myself off, I find it really difficult to do that. So I will choose to be in alignment rather than... Um, well, I didn't feel called today. The energy wasn't whatever today. The energy is not always going to be with you doing what you really need to do. We are creatures of habit. Our brain, our body is designed to um, follow the paths of least, resist least resistant. Like we wanna be as energy efficient as possible. Like that's how we're designed. Um, and sometimes we have to override that feature in a way that is healthy for us. Sometimes that means revving up the sympathetic nervous system so we can get through. Sometimes that means um, slowing down. And I say that because we give the sympathetic branch of our nervous system such a bad rap. Yes. It's there for um, a reason. But yeah, we, we, we have got to. And for me, yoga is very, very important. And also yoga is not enough. Thank you. And I want to come back to something else you shared, which is 
that we can find it not easy coping with joy. And I'd love you to speak to that because I think that's so important and something I've absolutely experienced. I'd love to hear what you have to say around that. So when I talk about joy, I would put joy, bliss, pleasure, all of that in the same camp. And um, our society conditions us for neutrality. Because when you're neutral, you're much more malleable. You're autopiloting your way through. You're not really feeling, you're not really alive to your senses. So we're not used to it. And then on top of that, because of our inbuilt negativity bias, which was really helpful when there were saber tooth tigers all over the place, but not as helpful um, now. um, Because of that, we are very suspicious. So we have phrases like, the rug will be pulled from underneath, like Brene Brown describes it as forbidding joy, like this is too good to be true. Um, I don't wanna jinx it and all of this other kind of stuff. We also have notions of uh, being a show off, being too big for your britches or brute boots or whatever saying um, you grew up hearing. So we're not used to the feeling of it and we can conflate it with being full of ourselves, being show-offs, being arrogant. And then on the embodiment level, because we're not used to those sensations and uncertainty, newness, change, transition is automatically viewed as a threat because we we don't have a, a muscle memory for how to manage that we can feel so um, overwhelmed by our feelings of joy, of bliss, that we shut it down. So um, that can be those things about jinxing it, but also I have lots of conversations with women who um, when having sex with their partner, the um, thought of having an orgasm feels so good and overwhelming they shut it down before they've had the opportunity to climax or uh, they constrict and make the orgasmic experience smaller, more manageable because they feel like they're, um, I know that the French word for um, orgasm is a a petite, like small death, but they literally feel like they're going to die. It's going to be too much. Um, So we're conditioned to be neutral. So we're just simply not used to it and we're scared of it. And um, we, have, uh, we can have similar fears of um, joy as we do fear. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for putting that in that way. And Oh, and sorry, it also, yeah. the other thing that springs to mind, there's also that notion that we have to earn it. And in a society that is like a <clears throat> predatory lender, where you never pay off the loan because the interest rates are so high, so it's never enough, you're always in deficit, you're always defaulting, then uh, you don't feel like you're worthy. Like, who am I to have this much pleasure? And then if you add another layer, adults who were socialized as girls when they were children, part of that socialization is people pleasing. So it's not uncommon for me to um, work with people who feel guilty for the goodness they have in their lives when there are people who needed to get free lunches when Marcus Rashford was doing the free lunch thing. Um, How dare I have a a good time when there's a war war in Ukraine? How can I uh, 
uh, receive pleasure? How can I live a life that feels blissful when I've got relatives back home in whichever um, country that has been colonized and prevented from flourishing? I've got relatives there who are suffering. So there's a whole um, mixture of things that are at play. And especially for women, my theory is that our pleasure, like we have the gut brain axis, we have a pleasure power axis. When we feel pleasured, we're much more likely to feel powerful because pleasure is a real mark of embodied safety, of a real like, um, feeling of safety that comes from the inside out. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if people who were hung, drawn and quartered um, as witches back in the day were women who owned themselves fully, women who knew how to activate pleasure and weren't ashamed of doing so, women who were willing to live by their own rules so that they could be pleasured and therefore powerful and their power enabled them to feel um, pleasured. So on top of that, um, a patriarchal uh, society doesn't want women to feel powerful. And then you add on the layers of intersectionality, black women shouldn't, definitely shouldn't be powerful. Asian women need to be submissive. There are so many layers at play so um, that's another reason why we can feel afraid of pleasure because we know that pleasure is linked to power and the experience we've had of power in our society is very dominant power over. It's very coercive, it's very much about subjugation. Whereas the power, generally speaking, um, communities of, uh, of women or women um, experience tends to be like power to share with, power to give to, communal power, um, a bit more egalitarian. And um, when we're not used to seeing that, like, you know, we quite often mistake the sensations of anticipation and anxiety because they come from the same root. The same way we can mistake the type of power we want to have with the type of power there is because the power comes from a similar place. Uh, so that can make pleasure feel really, really daunting, um, especially if you've got through life, making yourself convenient, being a good girl, following the rules and waiting your turn that never arrives. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, or being the bad girl <laughs> and yeah. then all yeah. the messages that come from that yeah. as well. It's just yeah. so multi-layered, isn't it? So absolutely. I really want to talk to you about work because I'm conscious of time and because mm -hmm. I, I really, um, there's so much more I want to explore about what you just shared, but I, I love that you sort of say on your website that your mission is to revolutionize how we work. Yeah. So I would really love you. And you talked at the beginning about um, working to live rather than living to work yeah so I'd love you to tell more about um, your vision for this and 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 you know for people as well maybe out there who are maybe struggling to find that balance with working to live or yeah. maybe that seems like a distant dream at the moment yeah just to share your vision and what you feel is possible and maybe some stories of some of the a story of, of one of the clients that you've worked with around this well I believe that, you know, I mean, I'm not even going to say something as wishy-washy as I believe. 
I know that we have been conditioned to suppress ourselves from the moment, probably from the womb, but definitely from the moment we were four years old, a few of us five, walking into those school gates for the first time. We went from being praised and acknowledged for taking ourselves off to the loo, wiping ourselves properly, washing our hands and being able to meet that need to going to school, putting our little hands up, saying, Miss, sir, we need to go to the toilet. And the first thing we were asked was, can you wait? Can you hold it? And I'm not saying that children should be able to, you know, go off to the loo whenever they feel like it. But it's, it's the um, kind of like symbolism of from the moment we go to school, we are taught to suppress our needs for productivity. We are taught not to be human beings, we're taught to be human doings. So children, four, five, six, seven, should not be sitting down for hours and hours of the day. They're supposed to be playing, climbing, exploring, eating mud and doing things that we tell them off for being naughty for because they're not sitting still with a pencil in their hand or a book on the carpet. So from a very, very young age, we are taught to distance ourselves from who we are, what we need and what we want so that we can conform to this very narrow, very limiting um, experience of what it is to be a human being. So we grow up with all these arbitrary measures. What's an A, what's a B, what's a C, what you need to do to be able to get them. The only way you can get them is, uh, the only way you can get them is with really hard work, sacrificing who you are and what you need. And that carries on right through to the workplace. So in terms of our work, it's not uncommon for us to be working towards an arbitrary um, goal that when we actually have the opportunity to connect with ourselves and who we are and what we want and what our vision for living is, we realize we don't even want that goal. That's not even what we want. But when we don't really know what we want and we're following what other people say is success, we will be chasing a moving target so it's never ever enough so what happens in work or in business you earn more money you spend more money you earn more money you spend more money so you're never really truly reaping the rewards of what you've got yeah you might have a bigger house you might have a house in an area that you consider to be a nicer area you might drive a nicer car you might have some savings you might have some investments but you're not enjoying them you're spending loads of hours. If you work from home, you're spending loads of hours in one room toiling away. You're spending loads of hours in a workplace. And the time you have in your car, the majority of it is commuting. You're not having an enjoyable experience. So these are the ways in which we lose ourselves and we're just working, working, working. And a lot of us have been brought up to believe that we literally do that until we're 65, then we can retire. And then you see people struggling in retirement because they don't know who they are. They're bored out of their minds. They don't know what it is that makes them feel turned on and what makes them feel alive. In business, this looks like people like just following trends without checking in on how they resonate with them. So when I first started working within the coaching industry, it was all about earning six figures, six figures, six figures. Now it's about seven, multi-seven, eight figures. And the people I see who are touting this stuff, even those that are selling this like really relaxed lifestyle, everything is on sale. Everything is a commodity. Their relaxation time, their self-care time, their intimate time, all of it becomes content 
for them to sell this dream to other people, but they're working all the time. And if they're not working, they're thinking about work all the time. They talk about being obsessed with work. They're driven, etc. Become obsessed with your life. Become driven to be, you know, I keep saying to people, I'm on a quest to be a well-rested woman. That's what I want. I haven't seen well-rested women. I don't come from a family of well-rested. I come from a family of hardworking women. I come from a family of resourceful, resilient, all of those kind of stuff. But well-rested? No, I don't. So then we get trapped in working more, earning more, creating more, and we don't know what for. So there was somebody I was working with. We were working together. This is when I used to offer three-month one-to-one packages. And there was just so much resistance. She knew all the stuff. She'd done all the courses. She'd been to the coaching, et cetera. And I was like, what's going on? So we got to around uh, week eight. And I was like, what's going on? I said, because like, I can feel that you're actually taking offense at me encouraging you now. So I just want to know what's going on for you. Do you want to have this business? Well, if I'm really honest, no, I don't. Do you really want to have a business? No, I don't. What do you want? If you thought no one would judge you, if no one could see what you were doing, what would you want? And she said, I'd be quite happy working part-time at the bakery in my village so I could pick up my children from school. I've always got enough money for ice creams, even if I've got friends coming home after school I can buy them ice creams as well we don't really do that much traveling abroad but we do love caravan holidays so I'd like to be able to have a deluxe um, caravan when we go on our holidays and I want to have time off with my kids in the holidays she was putting herself through merry hell because all of her friends were self-employed her friends were from the um, like they were what's it like uh, doulas and like birth birth keepers I can't remember what they're like supporting people hitting the therapists and all of that kind of stuff and they set up their own businesses and they were doing that and then they were talking about wanting to have 10k months wanting to make six figures and she thought oh well that's what we're supposed to be doing I don't want to do that but all of my peers are I need to keep up with them and if I don't do it if I don't do that I won't have anything to talk to them about so she was putting herself through that because she thought she wouldn't have it, she'd be judged by her friends and she thought she wouldn't have anything common, anything in common with our friends. So your work is your identity and it is your value and your work is what makes you a valuable person in your friendship group. So everything about her life and what she perceived to be the lives of her friends was revolved around work. You go somewhere and you ask somebody to tell them a bit about yourself, a bit about themselves. Most often than not, they launch into what they do. People find it very, very difficult to talk about who they are because they haven't had the opportunity to connect with who they are. So we're running around doing all of these things, hitting, well, trying to hit these goals that just keep moving. And we never stop and think, this is actually supposed to support my life. If I'm really honest with myself about the quality of life I want to live, how much that will cost me, what freedom I want to create with the money I'm making, how much money do I need to make? So I was, I was listening to a um, 
podcast the other day and a woman was saying for just before the pandemic her business was very close to a million dollars revenue during the course of the pandemic and not because of the the pandemic but it coincided with her becoming ill she had to train other people to do some of the parts of her business and the turnover for her business dropped and with that turnover dropping she was able to see she had more cash profit in her hand than when she was striving for the million and having time off being ill was like a wake-up call and she was able to get honest about the type of life she wanted to live and she realized she didn't need to have the team of people working for her that she needed because actually earning round about between 500 and 750 thousand dollars meant that she was having uh, all of her needs and then some like she was in a place of financial abundance but once she got over that threshold the staff the running costs, etc., meant that she'd be left with less profit. So when we understand what we need, um, and what we, why we want it, and what quality of life it will help us live, we can then make powerful choices about how we work. So rather than having that really st stressful job with lots of gravitas, um, like I describe it as being like upwardly mobile but internally stuck when you can actually really be clear about what you need, what you want and the type of life you want to live, you can start to craft work that supports that. You know, in the, in, during the pandemic, I was just reading stories of things like um, busy uh, lawyers in America quitting to pursue their dream of being a yoga teacher, um, etc. Something's got to give, let it not be us. Let us give up some of the addiction to work because we don't have connection to ourselves. Let us learn what it is for us to feel safe inside our bodies so that we're not trying to create a false sense of safety with money, which quite frankly is never enough. Yeah, it's a huge shift, isn't it? It's a it's huge, huge shift. And if you think about it, if we are connected to who we are and what we need to be human beings and not in a scarcity programming my way or the highway homogenous we've all got to be the same kind of way we then are able to build a greater appreciation for difference we're not going to you know as human beings we do have um inbuilt instincts that we are suspicious of um difference but we can bring conscious awareness to that. We can actually challenge ourselves to respond rather than to react to that when we feel safe inside our bodies. I'm just gonna find, there's a quote I love by Stephen Porges, um, the person who came up with polyvagal theory that really clearly articulates um, what I'm talking about. Because most of us, if you really land inside your body, and feel into how you feel with work, most of us don't feel safe mm -hmm. with the work. Deadlines, competition, go for this promotion, launch this thing. And pressure. so um, the yeah. pressure. So Stephen Porges in his um, pocket guide to polyvagal theory says, once we recognize 
that the experiences within our societal institutions, such as schools, hospitals, and churches, are characterized by chronic evaluations that trigger feelings of danger and threat, we can see that these institutions can be as disruptive to health as political unrest, fiscal crisis, or war. All of these institutions had some imp impact on us and have shaped the way we work. And then on top of that, we're always in political unrest. Just look at what's going on in the political landscape across the world, not just in the Northern Hemisphere. We are in fiscal crisis globally and war. There's always war going on somewhere. And the idea of war has become a lot more upfront and personal in European nations um, or nations that originate from European nations because of the war in Ukraine. So if you think about that cocktail, we actually are having those things on top of being conditioned and programmed by institutions that fill us with fear. Yeah, and what I'm hearing is it's redefining what success looks like and success might be. I want to pick my kids up from school and eat my ice cream with them every day. Exactly. You know, I remember when I got made redundant and it was quite a horrendous time in my life. And I just split up with my partner. My daughter was three and I was like a fast track senior manager at a corporation. I got made redundant and I got a part time job in a pub. The most stress was getting the topping wrong on a jacket potato. And I went to this party and this guy said to me, you know, what do you do? And I said, I'm a mum. And he literally looked me up and down and walked off. He actually walked off. <laughs> and in that moment, my mouth is agape. Yeah. But in that moment, the shock, but then there was actually a liberation. Like something mm. deeply shifted for me that I realized how much my identity had got wrapped up in my work. And it set me on a, that moment, set me on a whole new trajectory in my life. So I'm really grateful for it. Yeah. Yeah. And, <laughs> and just... thinking about what, you know, about pleasure and intimacy and all of that, you do not have the ability, like when you're living in a state of fear on a biological level, forget mindset, you cannot mind your mindset your way out of biology on a biological level your body is going to be clenching and gripping because you are getting prepared to fight, flight, fawn, freeze, survive. You don't need to be pleasured to survive. Pleasure is not accessible when you're surviving. So thinking about the type of relationships we want to have with one another, the types of relationships we want to have with our partners, <clears throat> it's very difficult to have them when you're living in a chronic state of survival. And then we end up in situations where our personal lives get the dregs of us. Our children get the dregs. Our partners get the dregs. We're snappy. We're reactive. We're blaming. We're shaming rather than being um, responsible and accountable and still being able to express ourselves. You know, you can express discontent and be empathetic, empathetic simultaneously, but you can't do that when you're in a survival state because all you're thinking is, I am a victim to everything that's going on and you're either with me or you're against me. And if you're saying something that I receive as criticism at this moment in time, that means you're against me and I need to protect myself from you. 
Yeah, thank you. And I'm conscious of time. So um, I would love to wrap up with um, what to share a final piece of wisdom, whether that's from your work, your life, wherever, for listeners in relation to what we've what we've been journeying with. <laughs> Mine would be to uh, use technology in your favour. So we talk about embodiment all the time, et cetera. And lots of people are like, well, well, what does that mean? Um, you know, we're all embodied. We're all in a body. Sometimes we just have very skilled coping mechanisms that makes us uh, not feel like we're in one. So um, mine would be to set an alarm on your phone three times a day, morning, noon, and night. And just if you're in a chair, if you're walking, wherever you are, take a moment to feel whatever part of your body is connecting to the ground or a chair or a bed or whatever, just pay attention to that, that part of your body that is connected to whatever it is you're sitting, standing or lying on. Because as you do that, you're connecting with your body, you're being inside your body and you are feeling what it feels like to be you. And one of the nice outcomes of that, you're gonna have a moment of grounding. You don't have to do it for very long. There are some people who might only be able to manage a second or the idea of it is totally discombobulating. Your body is the boss. You do whatever feels good to you. But for uh, the vast uh, majority of us, having a moment where even for 10 seconds, we take a moment. You can do it in a meeting. You don't have to close your eyes or anything. Just feel where your body is connecting with whatever. And if you want to spice it up, you can remember that whatever you're sitting, lying, standing on is connected to the earth. Therefore, you are being supported by the earth. So whenever you feel like it, you can connect to the support of the earth and come back into your body, feel a little bit grounded. Those three times a day, because once a day isn't enough, over a period of time, it has a compounding impact. And you're going to find that you're going to spend more and more time inside your body like you're going to end up walking down the road and think oh my goodness like I can feel my feet connecting with the ground like, I can, I'm a person right here right now in this moment so that's what I would I would share mm, beautiful thank you so much and where can people find you online I'll put all of your links in the show notes but where's your sort of predominant place if you have one yeah, my I'm trying to make my predominant place my newsletter, but my real predominant place, like the reality of my predominant place is um, Instagram. Uh, so do come and join me on Instagram at live360. Um, and on there, if you want to, you know, have a bit more of connection, um, you will find a link to come and join me at monthly exploration salons, where I'll be holding like a roundtable discussion where we can go a bit deeper talking about my most popular Instagram post from the month before. Um, so we can just have a bit more of a conversation and a bit more uh, connection. So you can sign up for those absolutely free. You just need to register, bring your mm. lunch. It will be at a lunchtime and we can have a bit of a powwow and then go off to our lives. Fantastic. Yeah, you've thank got you. some great content on your Instagram page, lots of great um, reels and videos. Thank so you, thank you. Recommend people check you out there as well. So Thank you so much for um, just sharing your deep wisdom and um, your way of like articulating this. You have a, a, a transmission that I feel it in my body. <laughs> you speak it all, you know. I'm an evangelist for this. <laughs> An embodied one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. Have thank a beautiful you. day.
Thank you for listening to the Love, Sex and Intimacy podcast with me, Sarah Rose Bright. I support women and couples across the globe to truly enjoy sex and pleasure and to create or deepen intimate relationships that are passionate and purposeful, happy and healthy, and I'd love to support you. You can book a complimentary call via my website at sarahrosebright.com to find out if my approach is right for you. And check out my website for information about my one-to-one coaching programs and any current workshops, group programs and retreats that I'm running. Wherever and whenever you are listening, wishing you a beautiful day.